Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Hello, welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. My name is Laszlo Andor. I'm the Secretary General of FEPS. And I have the pleasure today to speak with Michael Miebach, who is the president of Das Progressive Centrum from Berlin. Welcome, Michael. Hi, Laszlo. Thank you for having me. Um, thank you for joining, and um, our listeners should know that Das Progressive Centrum is a very important progressive think tank in uh, Berlin. We have uh, many joint um, activities together, research projects, public debates, and probably what stands out in our cooperation is an annual conference on uh, progressive governance, which is a very important tradition. And in the latest edition in June, you already started to take stock of the Merkel era, if we can speak about this way, although I suppose you know, we should also depersonalize political analysis as much as possible. But let's be honest, uh, if someone is in charge of a government for a very long time, you know, several cycles, people tend to highlight the importance of the person. We spoke about the Thatcher era or the Gonzalez era in the UK or Spain in the previous uh, decades. And I think it's going to be inevitable that people will speak about the Merkel era in the future. There is nothing wrong with that. So uh, consequently, the retirement of Angela Merkel is um, a very significant event, uh, not only for Germany, uh, but also Europe in 2021. She was not simply a long-serving German chancellor, but for many years, a kind of informal leader among the heads of state and government in uh, Europe at the EU uh, level. Some would say that she could have been easily re-elected if she wanted to. And nevertheless, for us progressives, it's very important also to see the flows in her leadership and government performance. And I would like you to elaborate on this complex uh, analytical question, perhaps starting with asking uh, what German people, mainly on the centre-right, but not only, appreciated most in Angela Merkel as a politician? I must say at the beginning that uh, I personally don't have anything against Angela Merkel as a person. She has many strengths, but I'm, I think you're right. We have also had to look at the flaws of her tenure. The people like about her, maybe in a way her typical German character, being humble, a little bit boring, not too excited about things. And um, they also, I think, liked very much the sense of security that she represented in the last years. She's an upright character, a strategic mastermind, no doubt about that. And above all, a successful politician, both on international level as a power broker and on national level, you could argue, in some ways. But I agree with you, Laszlo, it's important to assess her tenure critically, and she has some strength, but also weaknesses. And um, let's focus on the weaknesses. Indeed. So why don't you focus now on what we call failure or flaws in this period of uh, governance? I would argue that her strength is also her weakness. Her strength is good, acute crisis management. 
When things got messy, she was there with her analytical skills and was able to react on the events. Be it the euro crisis in 2009 and the decision to bail out Greece or the refugee crisis in 2015, I think you could argue that in a way she acted rationally. But her weakness at the same time is a leadership style that, that I would uh, describe as to wait, to moderate and to react. So she never used her important position to make propositions, to argue for something, to shape the discourse, but she acted mainly reactive. And if you want in a scientific way, a technocratic way, along with this, uh, one thing that's uh, really a problem that she's not a good speaker. But I want to give you an example to illustrate this a little bit. 20 years ago, the former red wing government and the electricity firms in Germany agreed on phasing out nuclear power until 2021. And when Angela Merkel was in power nine years later in a conservative liberal government. She took that back and postponed the date for phasing out into the future, only to correct this decision two years later mm. when Fukushima occurred. And this decision to take it back actually cost the taxpayer billions as the electricity firms had to be compensated for their losses. So this is for me a typical uh, example of her leadership style, which was only partly successful. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think we will come back to some of these details, but let me note that Angela Merkel, at the helm of uh, the federal German government, was first in two ways. Number one, she was uh, the first female chancellor of uh, Germany, and number two, Uh, she came from the East, the former GDR, as we call it. Did this matter much for German citizens, German women and German Easterners? Very good question. Very interesting question. In terms of women, I would argue, yes, it mattered a lot. She was a role model and a figure of identification for many German women. And if you look at the election results this year, you see that the Conservative Party lost more women than men. And part of the explanation, I believe, is that Angela Merkel is gone. Actually, it was a disadvantage having her as the leader of the Conservative Party for the opponents, especially for the SPD, whose front runners in the last years were all male. And as we know, they all started with the last letter S. So I think it's pretty, pretty clear that she had a big affection with women. It's more ambivalent with the East. I would describe the mainstream emotion of East Germans towards Angela Merkel as indifference. Mm -hmm. Many of them have not felt taken seriously and for granted as East Germans by her. And why is that? I thought about it and I figured that could be explained partly because she sometimes hid her East German heritage to be in order to be successful inside the Conservative Party and inside West German politics, if you want, Conservative Party uh, obviously being dominated by the West German wings of the party. And partly, East Germans also felt that she did not do enough for them. I'll give you one example. Of the seven government agencies that are located in East Germany, there is not one of them 
run by a president that was born in the East. In the federal ministries, we have 124 departments and only four of them are led by East Germans. So that that's, shows you that she, she somehow neglected the East. And I think that she knows that herself. She made, held a big speech on the day of unification two months ago, on October 3rd, where she described herself as a East German citizen and as, I quote, one of 16 million. And in this speech, which was very widely commented on, she criticized that oftentimes from West German perspectives, East German biographies are of lower value. And it's the first time that she did that quote in public. So unfortunately, if you if you want, she did that at the end, the very end of her tenure. Mm, better late than never. But would you say, or is it too much to say, that uh, the success of the IFD in the East is also partly a reflection of uh, this neglect? Could argue that I cannot prove it, but it's it always struck me that during the refugee crisis and afterwards all the manifestations in the especially in the east where the afd today is uh, one of the two or three strongest parties um was always also a anti-Merkel manifestation. One of the main headlines at some point was Merkel must weg, Merkel must go. And um, I think it hurt her. Look, at least it was always clear that uh, the centrist parties can never go into a coalition with the IFD. And I think this uh, clarity should be appreciated and had um, certain manifestations also at regional level. But um, I, I wanted to shift to the question of the coalitions, because um, she has um, governed um, in the four different cycles with two different coalitions, three out of the four being a grand coalition with the uh, Social Democrats. But the second one with the FDP, the Liberals, um, and in the second cycle, Europe, uh, let's be honest, suffered um, from German austerity. Does she or should she share responsibility with uh, Wolfgang Schäuble? the finance minister at the time, or we should say, oh, it was Schäuble. Well, I mean, in Germany, the chancellor has the so-called Richtlinien competence, which means that the chancellor decides on the general guidelines of a government. So, of course, she is responsible for the management and the decisions with regard to the euro crisis. And um, what I found striking during that period is something that's typical for Merkel, and that is looking at polls. Mm -hmm. So as rational and maybe scientific she approaches topics, she's also a politician or was a politician that always was very much influenced by polling. And during that time, when the major decisions towards Greece were taken, the general public mood in Germany was that Germany should not pay for a country that was responsible itself for its misery. And remember that that was actually the nucleus for the AFD to evolve. So the economic austerity imposed on Greece was, was a, a tough decision by Merkel. And, and she ignored what a journalist called German's historic complicity, meaning that despite the evidence that Greece was unprepared to join the euro, Helmut Kohl, a member of the Conservative Party, and his allies looked away and approved. So 
especially her party was also to blame for the whole mess and she totally neglected that fact. Yeah, that was, I think, showed another side of Angela Merkel. If you want a populistic aspect of her political personality. Well, various assessments of this long Merkel period probably agree that in 2015, when the so-called refugee crisis came, she managed to show more compassion than earlier at the time of the Eurozone crisis. Is this a fair description? I'm asking this because there's always, um, including at the time of the uh, refugee crisis, when she opened up and uh, suggested that you know Germany will manage easily this uh, number of reception and integration of uh, the refugees. So some people also suspected at that time that um, everything, including this measure, is driven by uh, considerations of business, since German business needs uh, more workforce, and given the demographic trends of the country, the necessary surplus can only come from abroad. So in a way, this was also a reflection of a demographic reprofiling of um, Germany, which is a very important aspect of uh, the Merkel years. I think actually that's a very, very interesting uh, perspective, approach. I guess you could argue that even though, um, of course, the configuration of Germany as being an immigrant country, a migration country, dates back decades ago. So this decision in 2015 did not really change the demographic structure of Germany um, with regard to the percentage of migrants. However, I think it might be true. I would argue that Germany in, the, in her period as chancellor changed, became a more open country, more open to migrants, to anti-racist laws, and so, so on and so forth. However, I would say that, again, it was not Merkel proactively, strategically, with a long-term perspective, trying to shape Germany as an immigrant nation. It was rather the coalition partner, SPD, that pushed for the reforms. The first major reform was a change in the nationality law under the Red-Green government. And later in the Grand Coalition, the SPD pushed for a new immigrant law, allowing more people to enter the country willing to work here. And now this reform, this necess these necessary reforms with regard to migration law and citizenship law will be taken on by the Traffic Light Coalition. They make major plans on, on, on two fronts. The one is they are planning a participation law, which is supposed to strengthen the way migrants participate in society. And the other one is uh, another reform of the nationality law, which will allow everybody a double citizenship. I see. I consider uh, this shift um, in terms of you know approach to migration, whether it is intra-European or migration from outside the, the European Union, significant in the sense that, in a way, it also paved the way to a more multicultural approach, uh, that uh, even um, towards um, intra-EU migration. 
Germany was very hesitant and, you know, waited seven years uh, as opposed to the UK or as opposed to Sweden until um, 2011, when the labor market opened up for the East Central European uh, countries, which became member of the European Union in 2004. But at the time of the Eurozone crisis, the then employment minister, Ursula von der Leyen, was you know actively looking for Spanish, Italian uh, young people to come to uh, Germany where there were much more job opportunities. So in a way, the demographic shift that took place under Merkel was somehow preparing Germany for the traffic light uh, coalition, which better represents this new approach, a different composition of society and probably a different set of values as well. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that, as I said. And um, the new coalition is... Uh, built upon three parties who are all who all stand for an open society. There's this liberal tradition of of not interfering in personal personal life of people. There's this green civil rights tradition, and of course there's this long-standing social democratic tradition of being uh, open and fighting against uh, discrimination. In all sorts. I'm really curious if this will make actually Germany a more open society as a whole, or if there will be tendencies to reject the new coalition. Because as you know, if you, as a so-called progressive force or progressive alliance, decide on, on certain laws, measures, and so on, there might be a backlash, which leads us to the Conservative Party. Mm -hmm. um, a lot will depend on how the Conservative Party will develop and uh, evolve after that. Let's also highlight here when um, we speak about the change from Merkel to the traffic light coalition, the merits and the importance of Olaf Scholz. Since um, his electoral strategy worked out remarkably well. And an element in this electoral strategy, if I'm not mistaken, was that his strategist presented him as a kind of natural successor of uh, Angela Merkel. Is it a right observation? And was this strategy successful? Your observation is partly right. I would argue that it was a mix that made Olaf Scholz such a, a successful frontrunner. On the one hand, he presented himself as uh, standing for security in the Merkel tradition, uh, which I think was especially important in the corona pandemic. He did not promise a revolution, but he promised concrete, if you want, measurable reforms, building 400,000 houses or flats per year, increasing the minimum wage, and so on. So security pragmatism, those were all notions that could be attributed to Angela Merkel as well. But you would do Olaf Scholz wrong if you would reduce it to this aspect of the campaign. Because on the other hand, he, firstly, he addressed uh, the underlying challenges of the German model, the long-term challenges very well, digitalization, demographic change, inequalities. And he did so very directly in his speeches. And that was that is something that Angela Merkel, I would argue, would not have done in that profound way. And then there's a, another thing that he tried, which Angela Merkel would have never done. He, he tried to forge a debate about the way 
we treat each other as members of society. And the main notion here was respect. Mm -hmm. Every speech Olaf Scholz was talking about respecting different lifestyles, caring for the daily life of the people. You can have a seminar on whether or not the notion itself, respect as a word, really worked out. But the bottom line was that people or We're, we're talking about how they deal each other in the society. And that was something that was innovative and, and very good. And it helped Olaf Scholz to form a voter coalition of people who feel that social justice and, and solidarity are important issues. And this coalition consisted of the traditional voters, the 15% that were saying in the polls in the last years all along that they would vote for the SPD, plus new voters, 10 percentage points of new voters. And I think it's very interesting to, to look at this, this group, the new voters, mm -hmm. from the perspective of, of Olaf Scholz. Indeed, the SPD, as well as the Greens, and even the Liberals gained new votes, new vote share, as compared to the previous uh, general election, which makes them rightly confident in this new coalition. Uh, but if you look at the other side, um, I think it was uh, quite funny in the autumn period after the elections that the CDU uh, couldn't easily release you know, the right uh, to government and uh, somehow try to insist on continuing one way or another. But honestly, I think the CDU after Merkel is in trouble, which is much more than um, a kind of complicated leadership contest, because if this analysis is correct, then Merkel probably managed to incorporate uh, some of the social and environmental initiatives into her agenda about uh, maternity, as well as paternity, the anti-nuclear, which you mentioned before, uh, minimum wage. And these policy shifts, although occurred under CDU chancellor, uh, did not become organic part of the CDU program and agenda. So in a way, if her party wants to go back to basics, then indeed they will be confronted with these you know, critical elements of the past 15, 16 years, and it probably leaves them in a confusion. How would you comment on this? I mean, it's part of her legacy, you're right, that she leaves behind a, a split inside the Conservative Party. I think it's not really only her fault, but it's more due to the fact that her personal success and the time in government did not well to the party. Um, there was not a, a lot of programmatic debate during that time. And of course, big questions about who will lead the party later on were postponed for a long time. There's basically two wings inside the CDU, CSU uh, in, in the moment. There's one direction that is basically trying to argue that the previous centrist approach by Angela Merkel, which you just described, was successful and should be followed in the future. Um, There are many arguments for that. And then there's this, I would describe it as a neoliberal, maybe law and order kind of approach mm -hmm. uh, represented by Friedrich Merz, who argues that some of the electorate of the AFD can be taken back. And that is a claim that does, that is not um, substantiated by what we know from the polls, because The AFD electorate is very narrow. Many voters of the AFD say that they would either vote for this party or 
they would not vote at all. Mm. So, and if you look at the recent election, you, you see that there's this margin of 10% AFD voters that sticks with the party no matter what, but the AFD was not able to reach out to the center. Yeah, that's also part of the story of this year's uh, general election. So I think that for, for the CDU, this law and order uh, approach is conservative going back to basis might be a, a dead end for the SPD, especially for the SPD, for all three coalition parties, especially for the SPD, it will leave room to become even bigger in the center. So it's a chance if you want for the SPD. Uh, my final question, I think, follows very logically from this point, because I wanted to ask you whether this represents a kind of generational shift in the political preferences. Can we say that somehow the young generation with uh, you know different approach on many issues, whether it is climate or immigration or even social questions, you know, start to dominate a new German political landscape? With regard to the FTP, the Liberals and the Green Party, I would say yes. Among the 18 to 24-year-olds, they are the strongest party. And the Greens are even the strongest party in the age group, uh, 25 to 34. And it's topics like digitalization, climate change, and education that, that play into the hands of FDP and Greens. The FDP has portrayed itself in the last years as the party of, of one part of the young electorate. So I would argue, yes, with regard to those two parties, we witness a generational shift. However, with regard to the SPD, I would argue it's a mixed picture. I was talking about the new voter groups the SPD was able to reach out to. And there's an interesting study out, a new study by the Hans Böckler Foundation, which looked at the people who decided to vote for SPD between June this year and September. This group of people who previously said they would not vote for SPD, and then during the campaign, they decided to vote for the SPD. That, that must be 10 percentage points of all of the electorate. And if you look at this group, the study comes to the conclusion that they are younger than the traditional voters, more female, with a rather low salary, many of them earning less than 2,000 euro per month, many of them workers employed in the service industry, a lot of them part-time workers. And so this group is younger, working under sometimes precarious uh, conditions, and they are obviously interested in equality of opportunity, better work conditions, and so on. And the SPD was able to tackle those issues and to bring them inside this voter coalition. It will be very interesting to see with regards to the success of the traffic light coalition altogether, whether the strongest partner, the SPD, will be able to hold, get a hold of the, this, of these new voters. And uh, Olaf Scholz famously said that the goal of the coalition was to get re-elected after four years, which is, to come back to our original topic, a totally different approach than the Merkel approach, because Angela Merkel always was, at least it was a claim, or the, at least the coalition partners felt that Angela Merkel was trying to marginalize them. That's true for the FDP, who fell out of the Bundestag after their coalition and with Merkel. It's true for the SPD, which 
went down election after election, trying to marginalize social democrats in reaching out to social democratic voter groups, talking about social democratic issues, talking about minimum wage, for example, a social democratic project which Angela Merkel tried to sell as her own idea, and so on. And Olaf Scholz now saying, no, we are not working against each other. We are working together so that after four years, all of these three parties can be re-elected with a good result. And I think this is a very good approach, and it gives hope that the next four years will be constructive and successful. Uh, many thanks, uh, Michael, for these uh, final points of um, this analysis. I really appreciate uh, that you shared your time with us to discuss uh, the legacy of Angela Merkel, but also some of uh, the uh, critical starting points of the new progressive so-called traffic light uh, coalition. You have been, uh, I think, fair, but also outspoken about uh, the performance of uh, the former Chancellor Angela Merkel and the the analysis of the background uh, of uh, the what concerns you know, German society, political preferences, and uh, especially the focus on the new generation is going to be extremely helpful for social democrats also to understand that uh, it's a big achievement to bounce back it's partly Olaf Scholz himself but also wider shifts in German society and nobody should sit on their laurels uh, because uh, SPD would need to do much more to appeal to the young generation uh, I think that was also very very clear uh, Michael Mibach uh, president of uh, Das Progressive Zentrum Uh, thank you so much, and um, I'm grateful for our listeners also to stay with us. Please stay with us also for future episodes of Feb Stokes. Bye-bye. Bye, thank you. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag Feb Stokes. More is yet to come. Stay tuned. <laughs>